Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Fern Cotton. Fern has returned once again to Under the Skin. Why are you laughing, Jen? You wrote that. I'm laughing at it myself. Why are you laughing at yourself? Because <laughs> I felt like I was a bit more free with it. <laughs> it's, you have gone free. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an epic poem about Fern Cotton's appearance on Under the Skin. Yeah, I felt different writing it. It's, look, do you know what it's like? It's like someone trying. That's what it's like, which is not something we're familiar with, is it, from you? No, usually it's more, this is what they are. This, yeah, I know, that's right. What it's like, Jen, is someone doing the bare minimum. No. Yes. And now here, this is like so actual you think effort. This is, is a compliment? I'd say you've done well, because like, listen to this bit, it's so exciting. <laughs> Fern has returned once again to under this... Whoa, shit! <laughs> you know, it's like it's really impactful. Thank you. I'm blown away. <laughs> I'm wearing sliders, Jenny, you know. No. And like when sometimes when I'm walking over here, well not sometimes, but today, the dog trod on the back of the slider. The slider comes off, the ground's wet. How close is bear walking behind you? Exactly, too close, isn't he? It's like a reverse guide dog. We haven't finished the fern intro. Fern has returned once again because also like, there's a sort of a tautology in it of returned once again. Like, <laughs> yeah. That is tautologist, but you're so freewheeling, Jen. You're so flowing. You've really found your Irish heart. Yeah. So who wants to who wants to stand in the way of that f emerald energy? Fern has returned once again to Under the Skin to discuss a new book. It's like Eminem. Bigger than us, the power of finding meaning in a messy world. In this podcast, we discuss Fern's work, the spiritual lessons she's learned throughout her career. We also discuss the Beatles, archetypal energy, and the importance of having conversations that go deeper. Now, I'm good friends with Fern and her husband, Jesse, and I actually love her and Jesse, of course. And it's nice to sort of talk to someone that you think, oh, I love this person and like just watching them sort of, you know, be who they are. What do you think, Jen? Do you like it? I made me want to watch the Beatles documentary. Have you not watched it? No, because it's on another platform. Disney. I don't have Disney. It's awesome. I've heard it's very good, yes. It's sort of... And I like that sort of stuff. I love stuff from the 70s. Well, it's from the 60s, Jen. So... Even further, that's better. So if it goes past the 50s, I'm not into it anymore. You stop at the 50s? I'd probably stop at the 60s, I think. What about... No, right, 1959, <laughs> no, 60, yes. I mean, isn't the whole concept of decades, Jen, a bit made up? Yeah, because they're going to start repeating, aren't they? We're going to be in the 20s. We are in the 20s. Oh, no. It's We're the 1920s. Not the 90s. But, Jenny, what, well, look, what I mean by it, it's not as if 1960 to 1969 is a real thing. It's a numerical thing. Yeah. There would have been all sorts of trends and lives that traverse that imaginary barrier between 69 and 70 as there would between 79 and 80. And why are we conforming to these sort of decimal barricades? Maybe it's just helpful. It's just helpful. Fair enough, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> just helpful. Is that all it is? Yeah. Now, if it's Patrick sent me a long text about you. Have you framed my thing yet? Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, no. Well, if you're listening to this, someone who works for me... <laughs> no, they don't. They don't listen to my work. It's mandatory. They don't do it. Why not? Are they not subscribed? No, they don't. No, they just don't listen They're to it. They're too busy. They don't care about the audio department. Is that how you feel, Jen? Yeah. They don't care about the audio department. It's fundamental <laughs> to what we do. Alicia... There's a feeling here that you don't care about the audio department and that, you're, that the team don't care. There's a fright. I tried to. What I said was, like, I, goes, like, I realised that I was supposed to get... You remember when Noel Fitzpatrick, super vet, wrote that um, yeah, poem? That poem. For Jenny. Yeah. He wrote a poem for Jenny and we were meant to get it framed. And I was just about to ask you like, to ask someone else to get it framed for Jenny because I said I wouldn't and then I forgot, right? 
And then Jenny told me that people, nobody cares about the audio. Because you went the mic. If someone working for me listens to this, and I said that no one working here will hear this. Because I was going to just so say it in the podcast, whereas if you're listening to this and you work for me, get that thing framed. And Jenny goes, no one listens to this. They don't, none of them work. Listen oh, I'm to. listening. No, but you listen to the whole podcast every week. So I think everyone should be listening. Oh, yeah, every week. All the oh, team, way. Annabelle, Laura, even yeah. young Putin. Everyone's d- devastated Subi, the Subi, you know, everyone, Lauren. Every time I'm out of the office, to put me a phone Bear. 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 doesn't matter, does it? He's not going to get us anything framed. But I suppose you think if you work long hours, the last thing you need when you're not working is yeah. work. Is that that's the? Well, it's your it? your voice is that means work. Work. Yeah. Oh, there's that voice. She's going to ask me to do something, and actually, that is what I was doing. Yeah. I was getting something framed. I was going to put it in a podcast. Oh, that would have been really horrible. Imagine if you were listening to a podcast. Oh, finally I can relax. But actually, I do enjoy his content. He's a good man, <laughs> deep down. And then suddenly, could you get this bit? Fucking hell! This is my leisure time. Yeah, well, anyway, please get that thing framed. And it's now mandatory. <laughs> Those are the two things that have come from that. You can't make people listen to things in no. their leisure time, Jen, can you? No. Clearly not. Um, okay. Anyway, Jen, are you interested in cross-section? No. Not at all? No. Why? A cross-section of a, a wart? No, of course not. There's cells in there. Yeah, but I've got cells all over me all the time. Yeah, but... <laughs> I've got cells all over me all the time. Yeah, but Jenny, we're talking about cross-sections, Jen. Yeah, no, you're obsessed with that. You're obsessed with things. Cross-sections. <laughs> a nice cross-section no, of... No, but you had this on the radio show and it really upset people because there's a phobia associated with so it. So what? It can't be that common. It's quite common, I think. Well, the people the, who've got the a phobia... phobia is... Yeah, whatever. it has a funny name, obviously. Well, anyway, I'd like to see a good set of cross-sections. I saw a cross-section of warts the other day. That's horrible. In there, there's a, a sort of... A, there is, I have to say, a network of cells. There's nothing more to it than what that. What about a tree? That's nice. Yeah. I like uh, cross-sections that are coming down a slice. Or like a, a, a daffodil. <laughs> a daffodil, no. Because like, yeah, they're really thin. They're hollow in the inside, their stem. All right, that's all right. I'd like that, I suppose, to a degree. But I'm more interested in the pimple or something. I you know, know, gross stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much. I like cross-section of that. But that's why people like Dr. Pimple Popper. Yeah, I watched one the other day. I mean, it's the idea of getting something cleansed. I don't think so. I what think do it's you the think opposite. it is? Ejaculatory. Filth. Yeah. Re- <laughs> a celebration. <laughs> it's a celebration of filth. Yeah, I don't think it's cleansed. No? No. People, It's a dirtying. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit mucky that isn't it Jen yeah that's what you're into no I like it cleansed <laughs> no that's what you're saying it is it's not cleansed why would I trick everyone <laughs> you're tricking yourself <laughs> right okay <laughs> well I think cross sections are pretty good um, Bear are you alright mate good lad okay so look, listen this episode with Fern it's lovely she's a bright wonderful person and I love being a participant in her growth you should listen to her podcast Happy Place you should get her book Bigger Than Us The Power of Finding Meaning in a Messy World now let's see what people said about Daniel Pinchelbeckel Pinchbeck now time for comments British Vintage Boxing that's a committed ta- name isn't it that like, I, I, almost if you're talking about anything Except British vintage boxing, you think, well, what do you care? You're so devoted to British vintage boxing. But I love you, British vintage boxing. This podcast was brilliant. Great guest. Fireheart. Thank you, mate. 
Winter. I love the idea voiced here that exploitation becomes boring. I think all that's happening at present are growing pains as we move to a more holistic understanding of our own consciousness and its limitless potential, dumping collective bad habits, re-establishing ancient connections to Mother Nature and ourselves in the process. Mate, I hope you're right. I think that's what's... Something, yeah, we've got to get through this. We've got to get through this, haven't we? Like Daniel, what was that guy's name? you got to get through this. Who's that? Oh, God, I'm old. But he used to go, <laughs> you got to get through this. Go. In an Irish accent. He had a sister that was also a pop star. You gotta get Daniel Beddingfield. That's him. Yeah. So Natasha was I gotta the get one through this. sister who had um, God, well done. Yeah. How I was alive. How do you how, how do you know about them? <laughs> they were in the choice. Damon Hurst did cross sections of sharks, didn't he, of course? For, and from Why are you so obsessed with cross sections? Let's say what's in there. This podcast called Under the Skin. Yeah, but it's not called cross section. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to shout outs. Cheryl Madalena, just listen to you talking to Marilyn Sheldrake. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Marilyn. So watch it, I made a mistake. I'm not part. What a perfect episode, very interlinked and layered, like an ecosystem of which I'd like to see a cross section. <laughs> yeah. Like the Earth's crust. And all, all right. all the soft jelly. I bet your favourite thing is volcanoes. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd rather there was pus in there. So it's not a cleanse. <laughs> <laughs> a pus cano. You're upsetting you Will. All that pus coming out. Is Will getting upset by that? <laughs> Do you watch any of that stuff, Will? <laughs> no, look. I never watch it. Does your girlfriend watch it? I hope not. Uh, <laughs> Wait, but you watch it. <laughs> Dirty stuff. Why is this person, Cheryl Madalena, whose name I love, talking about my Merlin Sheldrake? Because oh, yeah, it's shout outs. It's a long while ago. Yeah, but, she made, yeah, but the podcast is there. You can listen to whatever you want when you yeah. want. That's the beauty of it. So that's part of the beauty. Camille Virginia. My God, that's like someone from Charles Dickens or something. I mean, that's a very... Is it Camille or Camille? It's C-A-M-I-L-L-E. Camille Virginia. Don't you think it's a very evocative name? I mean, it's almost impossible not to think about sex, isn't it? I didn't think about sex. I thought about someone standing outside of a saloon. <laughs> Well, now it's me, Camille, Virginia. Yeah. Well, looky here, cowboy. Well, yeah. Now you've made it sexual. What's she, what's she doing outside the saloon? Touting for business. She could be selling a newspaper. <laughs> they don't want newspapers at the saloon. They're having a drink. Well, while they have their drink, they read a paper. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for sexualising you, Camille. That's um, not right. But your name had Camille, which I feel sort of feels very, in its own way, erotic. Why are you obsessed with the word Camille, the name? I didn't think that. It's just where it was next to no Virginia. One would, no Camille one named their kids. Huh? Is it because Virginia reminds you of vagina? And virgin. Oh. <laughs> like, because it comes from Elizabeth I, isn't it? They used to sort of celebrate her virginity because she came a de facto Mary figure because she sort of persecuted the Catholics. So she herself became the figure that she was um, uh, uh, ameliorating from cultural life. She became that was virgin. Was Sort of karma, but also a deliberate attempt to uh, use, utilise the energy that sort of the sacred feminine energy. Did she know she was doing that? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think it's just how myths operate. Okay. I'm a big fan of Under the Skin while I work here outside this saloon bar <laughs> in this mining town way out in the Wild West. And I just listened to your episode with Jordan Peterson. Shucks, he sure is a real varmint. 
<laughs> we shouldn't say that. We've drawn Peterson. And I really enjoyed the juxtaposition of your two different perspectives, cl yet clear mutual respect and giving of space to one another. I'll just give it a five-star review on iTunes if you care about such things. And yes, we do. Do you know what, Jen? You know that time they, we was made to enter a contest? What do you remember contest? that? We I don't know. To podcast oh, yeah. contest. I'm never doing it again. I don't remember Why? getting a medal, do you? We didn't get anything. Right. Never again, Jen. I think they enter us. Well, that's we ain't doing it. If they say, can you do this thing for a contest? I'm going, no. Tulumine. Well, I mean, I want to be a good partner. Tulumine. <laughs> but I am going to have to say no. Because Cause you want an actual medal. Maybe that could just be the terms. So just bring a medal in and we'll accept that. But other than that, just leave us out of it. Yeah. It's fair enough, isn't it, Jen? Yeah, if you like medals. So... Who doesn't? <laughs> no one? To some people? The people that throw them in the river? Who throws them in the river? threw those MBEs away, didn't they? Or OBEs? Or whatever oh, they but that was like against the monarchy. Black they? Panthers, did they accept their medals? But they weren't like they won a race and they threw the medal away. Oh, fuck this. Yeah, no, maybe not. All right, should we listen to Me and Fern now? Yeah. Now those 80% uh, of, of you stayed and listened That's to that. That's loads, isn't it? 20% of you spooled forward. I'm a spooler. You spool? Yeah. Everything. If you're listening to Mark Maron or yeah, um, Armchair listen. Expert with Dax. Yeah, all of them. Unless I was preoccupied to, to, and couldn't spool. I would listen to this bit. Oh, I'd probably you. prefer <laughs> this bit. <laughs> That's what they say. Who? Some people. I prefer that bit. Yeah. Well, it's a radio show. A 15-minute radio show. We're like Had Stern and that lady. Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> and that lady. <laughs> Robin. Or um, like in Fraser. You're Roz. Yeah. Although she's a very carnal woman. So. <laughs> <laughs> she'd love a cross section. She'd like no, a pimp. She wouldn't, because she'd be satisfying that need elsewhere. Oh. Uh, you think it's an abstracted yeah. sexual desire? You Freudian lunatic. Yeah, she wouldn't want to look at Doctor Pimple Popper. All right. Guess to listen to Fern now. This is to our friend Fern. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Fern, thanks for coming on Under the Skin. Pleasure, Russell. What are you doing? Taking a big mighty swig of water <laughs> to get yourself on track. What is that even? What a big oh, it's flagon. a horrible sort of plastic hip flask, but it's just got water in. These are the sad times we're living in. You look well. Do I? Thank you. Yeah, you really do. What's your life consumed by at the moment? The, this book that you've written, Bigger Than Us, thank you for sending us a copy and inscribing it. Is, it like, is, your book, is this what's defining your life at the moment? Purpose, the pursuit of purpose and meaning. Yeah, like thematically, my life is being driven by that. But on a practical note, there is just a lot going on, which I feel you know, grateful for. But then I do question, like, why am I trying to do so much? I'm currently sort of speed writing a kid's book um, before this new one is even out. So I, I'm sort of questioning why I'm putting myself under so much pressure, but equally as, as you know, grateful for getting to be creative every day and sort of trying new stuff. What I'm trying to do, even though you've not asked, and why would you, because you're a guest <laughs> on my podcast, is like continually go in myself and think, what are you 
doing right now? Like, what are you trying to do right now? Well, who's driving the bus, they say, in sort of 12-step type fellowships? Like, you know, like, because sometimes I'll catch myself and actually what I'm trying to do is get someone to give me a compliment. Like, that's what's underneath (laughs) my, would you please give me a compliment? That's what's driving me. Or I want someone to be attracted to me or I want someone to think I'm impressive. And, like, you know, like this is what, like, my brilliant therapist Bruce is all about. And, like, I'm realising the importance of this, Fern, and I I wonder how this chimes with what you've been writing about, given that it seems that what you're writing about is trying to popularise and make accessible spiritual ideas, practices and techniques that in different times and you know for the majority of our history as a species would have been the dominant ideas that held individuals and communities together you know what i get from bruce is the idea of stay awake stay awake watch yourself what what's happening now like you know you've gone unconscious my whole little life is about watching when i've gone unconscious and the types of things that will make me go unconscious you know like when you just said i'm writing this book already even i've just written another one it's like what is going on you know we do want to be creative don't we there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong like and when we were chatting before nothing wrong with having a purpose you know like and loving what you do for a job but if really deep down you, like the the engine is i'm not good enough i'm only good enough if i'm doing this stuff you know then obviously that's not a good motivation you know it's it's almost not our fault because i think society has just changed so much and culturally um just the notion of like how we work and how much we work and how much we're creative, etc., has been warped. So, mm. you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, it was all much more about community because community needed to exist so that people could survive and, and people could work as a team, whether it was for food or shelter, whatever. And probably since the 80s, we've been you know, sort of propelled into this thinking where it's really individual and we want to get ahead, we want to be the best. So it's kind of half not our fault and half then we have to do some self-inventory and look at the whys behind our actions. And, you know, I know that you're deeply interested in that and as am I, and it's a necessity at times to stop and ask myself, you know, exactly that. Why am I working so much? And I think, you know, usually there's one root fear or root problem and mine seems to be from the sort of work that I've been doing and the self-exploration and excavation is that I often don't think I'm, I don't know, worthy or deserving of, um, you know, the life I have and the opportunities I have. So I think I've got to work so hard to deserve it, to earn it rather than to accept that creativity can have a real beautiful ease about it. So I'm still muddling my way through that one. And some days I feel great and I'm in a flow and I feel really brilliant about it. And other days I don't. And I know it's, you know, what's driving the bus is a feeling of unworthiness. When I did 10% of a university course before thinking, I can't do this university course. (laughs) I'm a middle-aged father of two. This isn't like a John Hughes film where a man goes back to university for some weird reason. Like, but while I was there, I picked up a few things, like even what we were discussing there, you know, like your sort of sense of self-worth and the idea that you're meant to be working. You know, there's a few little things that come up here. Firstly, the old Nazis, those friends of history, had a little phrase called joy through work. Like, you know, that work was meant to be our access of joy. And then there's this uh, philosopher called uh, Max Weber who talked about like that through Protestantism as opposed to Catholicism, we could be endeavouring to be good children of God through 
uh, through toil that it was necessary that like a lot of like the Old Testament getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden stuff is about like we've got to work hard now we've got to work hard so there's your there's the modern culture's imperatives that it inflicts on us that like you've got to work hard you've got to be doing something there's whatever went on in your family whatever particular traits you've got bi- biologically but then there's a lot of stuff that we don't even know how we acquired it and Terence McKenna who I'm well into like he was a sort of a uh, botanist and if no botanist he was like an expert in plants and stuff but like if you watch some videos of this guy on youtube fern you'll love him he kind of talks like this and <laughs> just did a hell of a lot of like dmt and ayahuasca and he came up with among many other beautiful little idioms and phrases and like a lot of these sort of semi-guru type people you know you've got to keep your eyes peeled because sometimes they go off the rails and say some crazy stuff but like a lot of these things are so beautiful he said like culture is not your friend culture is not your friend like but all these things fashion and music and entertainment and politics like that they're the way they are functioning they present themselves as your like ally and as a resource but what are they actually doing to you are they making you feel good or are they making you feel bad and like a lot of conversations that me and you have are about like the negative impact of cultural force yeah i think well it's interesting because we've discussed both over the christmas holidays like if we look at the sort of negative first i i definitely know how that one works because instantly if you've got something that is um i guess being projected as uh, a collective you can feel you know, like you're left out there's an exclusivity about it and if you don't fit into it then I can I, you know we've all experienced that we feel like I don't fit into this new cultural phenomenon or certainly I had that when I was working in the music industry because it was so fast there was always a new thing and if you weren't into it or you weren't up to speed with it you could easily feel like you were irrelevant or that you you know you just sort of lost your way a little bit so I certainly understand um, that sort of cultural projection that we're all dealing with and it's really really hard to avoid it in this day and age due to how we imbibe information you know it's we almost seemingly have no choice or we we certainly don't notice the choice we have because it's in our hands all day on a phone or on our laptop or when we're walking about advertising billboards billboards whatever it might be it's unavoidable but, you know, what we've talked about over Christmas was my latest obsession. And um, I am a very sort of obsessive person. When I like something, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, I'm sort of always working from a place of obsessing about this one thing. And I watched um, Get Back, the Beatles documentary, which is about, I don't know, six, seven hours long. It's like a beautiful slog of like old reality TV. It's, it's the most genius documentary. And I loved every second. And I I was talking to your wife about this, Laura, because I sort of wept at times with elation. But also I was so gutted that... I wasn't there and I never will be there. And I've missed out on this incredible era of music and fashion and no phones, you know, no social media. It, it just, it looked like liberation. I know it's not that simple. I know there was all sorts of other problems at play, um, but it just looked so beautiful, especially on a sort of creative tip. And that's really inspired me in many ways and sort of looking at the individual characters of the Beatles and how 
They were expressing themselves through music and fashion, all the things we've just talked about, really fearlessly. And maybe that was because they weren't being bombarded with so much. I mean, they were bombarded with feedback, but it wasn't perhaps so sort of um, omnipresent because mobile phones and social media didn't exist. And they just sort of seemingly said what they needed to say without worrying, oh my God, is someone going to slag me off? Is that going to offend someone? What's going to happen? They were just saying what they needed to say. And I've been really impacted by it, like in a huge way, like maybe too much, um, in a sort of childish way almost. I've become completely obsessed with that, that whole era. I mean, I already was in love with it, but I've become deeply obsessed with it now. Like someone's asked myself, like Laura once said, how many times have we got to go through the death of Diana? Do you know what I mean? It's like, like, oh no, I can't go through this again. Like you watch The Crown, then there'll be like yeah. a new film about that. And it's like, you know, with, because the death of Diana is like in our contemporary culture is a mythic event. And, like, and if you watch, like as I've been doing recently, a bunch of like princess movies with my kids, like you think, no wonder this woman rung a bell because she's like one of them in real life. You know, if you watch yeah. bloody Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or whatever, and then like someone actually turns up who is that in reality, it's like smashes you in the face. And I feel like how many times am I going to, in my life, fall in love with the Beatles? Like the first thing, there's like my mum's records when I'm a little kid. Then like there's like you start to learn a bit about John Lennon when you're a teenager and then like you start getting into George Harrison and his involvement in mysticism. And then you learn about Paul McCartney's sort of uh, musical purity and devotion to what he does and Ringo's kind of um, Picaresque mischief. And like when seeing this thing, like cause it's like the bloody Blue Peter time capsule, something that was made 50 years ago and then suddenly you're invited into it. There's sort of like what, like you said, like a reality TV thing because you've got this the almost nose-picking intimacy, watching geniuses do stuff. It's almost at points overbearing, like like looking at the sun for too long. It's like, oh my God, I can't cope with being this near to them. Mm. To see the ordinariness of them, like, and have another bit of toast. Like, you know, like... The... Oh, the marmalade on toast. That's all they ate. It was fags and marmalade on toast. It was and wonderful. They're so thin, aren't they? Oh, well, they have that marmalade <laughs> on toast. And their hair, so lustrous. <laughs> no one was eating goji berries and sort of <laughs> smoothie bowls topped with star fruit. They're eating marmalade on toast every day, boshing out the most sensational music with lyrical genius that still stands today and has deep personal meaning. I mean, it's just the best thing. And it has, you know, I've been thinking so much about creativity recently, having just written a book and now in the depths of writing another one. And I guess why I've been so drawn to that Beatles documentary is because they were at that stage after however many albums in they were at that point. This is obviously their last album they made. They were at a sort of fearless point where they had stripped back so many layers and they had been, you know, through so much craziness globally that they're at a point where there was no other choice but to just be themselves. They didn't have to be like the the kind of teeny pop guys who all the girls were chasing anymore with the little neat bowl haircuts. They didn't have to do crazy clothing like in Sergeant Pepper. They just sort of rocked up to Twickenham Studios or then at their headquarters at Apple as themselves. And that, to me, is the bit that just has piqued my interest because, you know, we've both been through all these different sort of stages in our careers where we felt we had to fit into a certain box to be accepted on TV or whatever it might be. 
And that obviously gets really tiresome. And now I'm experimenting with how me can I be? And without this sounding hugely self-indulgent, I think it's something that we all can do in and outside of work. You know, if we're having just, you know, we're in a dynamic with a mate or it's the school mums at the school gate or whatever it might be, you... All of us, the point is, we all want to just feel like we can truly be us, have our guard down, you know, there's no act. We're just being truly authentic to who we believe we are. And that's a whole other, you know, kettle of fish because who are we and what is the essence of us? I don't know. But at least, you know, there's a feeling of it. And you get those little moments where you're courageous enough to really show up to whatever situation it is with whatever you're bringing that day, feeling grumpy, tired, insecure, or joyful and amazing, and you're you're not hiding any of it. You're just being you. So I think watching the Beatles do that, because you could see there was confrontation and there were some sort of minor arguments going on. At one point, George brilliantly sort of leaves the band for about 10 seconds. And they were just being them. And they brought to the table every day what they were experiencing in their lives. And I... I'm not trying to mimic that level of sort of global adoration or success, but I certainly want to be as authentic and as raw as they were in that documentary and to create from a place that feels very real without worrying too much constantly about what the feedback's going to be. It's a, a, yeah, it's a good aspiration, Fern. I like, feel like it's almost impossible to be objective about the Beatles because the cultural platform that we stand on, they put there, it's almost like Christianity or something. It's like you can't think outside of the set of moral codes that we have been in, have been we've been endowed with from Christianity. The kind of cultural perspective, our understanding of fashion, our understanding of music, lyricism, um, assassination and murder, what it is to influence a culture, all of those things have sort of like just strewn with that idea. Like I have the uh, privilege of being friends with Danny, uh, who George's son, and, and like one of the things he said is like you, you know try going through a day without getting a reference to them guys. You know, I mean, it just doesn't really happen and then I said like yeah like the idea of a world without the Beatles is a subject of a film in itself as a sort of a philosophical kind of idea now like and like yeah they've given us in a sense if not new archetypes modern understanding of archetypal energy um i i read once about how like george harrison's relationship with um, ravi shankar was a sort of a pivotal moment in how pop culture and Eastern mysticism come together. In this book of yours, you one of the uh, sections, and it's like really early in the book, that you talk about shamanism. Why is shamanism something that you're interested in? And it's obviously a very ancient and perhaps the earliest form of religion is shamanism. What's your understanding of that, or how at least is it personally relevant to you, Fern? I think that's why I wanted to sort of start chapter one with that subject matter because it's so seeped in um, history and also mysticism as well as some real sort of practical ideas and the point of that chapter is to truly understand what shamanism is about and what shamans are trying to do because of course if you go and see a shaman or we can even just sort of read about shamanic work online or in a book we know that you know, like anybody trying to 
um, heal somebody. There, there's a point to it, but they'll get people coming to them with all different problems, ailments, wishes, demands, whatever it might be. Um, so is there one point and what is it? Because as, as, as much as I love looking into all these subject matters and learning about shamans and, and different types of um, healing and spirituality and mysticism, whatever it might be, I, I think what I'm trying to do is, is break down any barriers for people who feel like, oh, that's not for me. I don't, I don't want to know about shamans or I don't have t- time to do a, a shamanic practice or a ritual or a ceremony or they're a bit spooked about it or they just think it's woo-woo. I, you know, I'm no expert. I am not educated in this stuff. I've researched the hell out of it because I'm super interested in it. But my job now in life, whether it's this book, the podcast, whatever other project we're working on within Happy Place, is to bring interesting people, wise minds, expansive thinkers to the table so we can learn from them and then we can apply that to our own lives really simply. Like all of this stuff sounds you know, super mystical and amazing, shamans and, you know, whatever they're doing, if it's acupuncture or burning stuff or whatever. It sounds otherworldly, but but all of this stuff can be applied to our everyday life, like many people did back in the day, and a lot of cultures obviously still do. It's ingrained in their everyday life. So my job is to bring all of these interesting subjects now and thinkers to my audience um, to see what we can all learn. I'm very much on this sort of explorative adventure with everyone else. I'm not coming from a place where, you know, I know everything and I've got this sorted and I'm nailing life. I'm obviously, and hopefully my work portrays this notion as as flawed and full of regret and all sorts of other heavy emotions as everybody else. But I desperately want to understand these gorgeous theories and practices and ways of thinking that have been around for thousands of years, way before we had Google, way before we had an understanding of modern science. I really want to understand them and see if we can apply them to not only the modern world, but also everyday life, because I can easily switch from doing some sort of beautiful meditation or perhaps a a ritual before I start work to then getting really fucked off that like my Wi-Fi is down or you know, the delivery that I ordered is late and just something that's completely, um, you know, just doesn't need to to bring stress into my life. So I, yeah, I really want to make um, make all this stuff really accessible and, and every day. Yeah, it's a good ambition and it's clear that you're pursuing it um, assiduously. Bigger than us, the power of finding meaning in a messy world it's like you're writing a lot you're creating a lot of stuff and like elsewhere in the book you like look at um prayer ritual all of the kind of areas of spiritual life that uh, or some of the areas of spiritual life that are like worthy of exploration and you put some good building blocks in place for people you once said to me that um that you had realized that spirituality is not like a side dish it's their main meal that's the sort of has to become the kind of focus of life now like i i was struck by that and i've always remembered it it's probably two or three years so you know maybe maybe in another three years i'll see if i still remember it fern or perhaps <laughs> by then more profound things would have been said by you that i'm that i'm uh, contemplating but like it's weird isn't it because you think like there's we live in a pretty individualistic, self-centered culture. And even some of the challenge, I think, when we're in this particular area, spirituality, is how not to get too 
like they not make it another thing like, that we're obsessed with about ourselves like my like and i ain't even gonna take responsibility for this like i'm self-obsessed right but i feel like well i've been bred to be self-obsessed i've been like a person like you i've been famous now for a bunch of years you're told that you're super important and even before that even if you like forget the bloody celebrity all of us are like you know this is your phone this is your individual life this is your individual profile this is your avatar this is what you gotta do every one of us is publishing our own little pages all over these various new emergent formats and you know when we say something like spirituality is the center of our life is pivotal is formative and foundational we're saying that there's got to be sort of a home in us that there's a place that we return to i think we're saying that like someone said to me yesterday man it's been like i think this is deep stuff like he said the price of wisdom and integrity is despair and he unpacked that for me a little bit by saying that you know like the despair is you recognize there's a lot you're going to let go of you're going to let go of beauty you're going to let go of sleeping around you're going to let go of the fact that your children ain't going to live forever that you you know that your pets are dying like you go like the despair has to be you're going to get walloped with it like for a full frontal wallop of despair now how do you feel about the kind of pain and sort of ugliness that's stitched into the spiritual life and how do you combat the kind of cultural tendencies to individualize all of this stuff I think, first of all, spirituality isn't something that you do. And I don't even think it's the central focus of life. I think it is life. I don't think you can do it. It We are just, we're alive and life is spirituality. And as soon as we start thinking of it other, otherwise, that's when it becomes some sort of individual pursuit or like who's better at spirituality or who's wiser or who's studied it more we're doing it all day every day um perhaps on different levels of awareness but we're we're doing it and i think you know when i first spoke to you about this i I was going through some i guess slightly frustrating times because i was still a little i had like one toe in the door of tv still and i have zero toes in the door now. no toes you took out every toe i've literally chopped off all my toes And I was sort of, you know, approaching different production companies and talking to TV channels about doing a TV show on spirituality, which is essentially on life. And the feedback was always that it was a bit niche. And I thought, how could it be niche? Like, it's not it's not the side dish. It is the whole point. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're just sort of mechanically moving through life doing what we're told and trying to stay in line and trying to be a decent person but what about all the other stuff um i heard you talking to jimmy carr about that sort of sentiment like are you just going to walk through life being a, a decent person um but without perhaps looking for like the meaning in it and also as soon as you 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 start wanting to to live just as a decent human and be benevolent and do good deeds when you're not that's where you then obviously slip into self-loathing and a negative spiral of thought so it's you know i i kind of had no option i Luckily, I was, I was brought up by a mum who's very um, sort of broad-minded and was really into 
spirituality, <laughs> you know, on the level that we would go into a shop called Dreamcatcher on Pinner High Street where they sold bits of quartz and you could have Reiki. So we were, you know, it, I was aware of all this stuff. I didn't necessarily get it on a on a deep level, but I knew that it kept mum feeling really happy and she liked some seriously out there stuff to to sort of stop her from looking over the into the abyss too much. And um, and then going from being in my 20s and doing a job that was really exciting, never feeling quite comfortable in it, but sort of going with it anyway, I, I sort of got cracked in two. And I think when you go through something really shitty and, you know, I'm never too specific about anything, but I had a, a big period of of depression and then subsequently anxiety which are still you know still deal with the anxiety bit not necessarily the depression bit so much um but I think when you either hit rock bottom or you go through something very very challenging and you're broken in two the first thing that happens is the illusion breaks so all the obvious things that were um, had that sort of illusion aspect to them, like the job that I was in, all of a sudden didn't make sense. Like, what, what, is, what am I doing? What is all this? Why, do it, why does this job often make me feel so terrible about myself? And then obviously on a deeper level, the illusion of, of you breaks to an extent. You know, every bit of your identity that you've created through the things that you do, the people you know, what you've achieved and haven't achieved sort of becomes meaningless. So I had no other option than to dive into spirituality or you could just call it life a little more rather than living on the surface of it and just sort of getting through it. I wanted to, well, first of all, I wanted to seek meaning in the shit that I've been through that I didn't want to be experiencing. And 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 it, though the the ways that you might do so is to look into this world of spirituality and the different practices that come from all different parts of the globe all different cultures that have been going for eons have really um helped people find meaning therefore probably find their purpose because of that and also overarching all of that is looking for connection and and connection obviously spans connection to others connections to to nature and the planet and a big one a connection to yourself and we're subconsciously disconnected from so much in the modern world and we sort of know it and we sort of feel a bit sick about it and we don't really often know what to do about it you know on a really practical basic level you want to go and buy some strawberries they've probably been flown from another country they arrive in a plastic punnet you on a sort of deep level feel really uncomfortable about the whole situation but you just want to eat strawberries there's bits that are wrong with the systems we live in and it's disconnected us on every level so I think our only chance to secure a better connection with ourselves the planet and others is to go down this route yeah I agree with you how do you and how do you navigate the fact that if you start to uh, investigate what you call life and what is loosely called spirituality, which I recognise is a term that's in a sense so um, loose and pervasive that it almost has no validity. If you start sort of waking up and start thinking, what is it I'm doing? Who am I? What do I want? that quite soon you find that you are buttressed by 
political and social concepts and it's kind of difficult to escape the fact that mm, you're dealing ultimately with kind of political corruption, media corruption, corporate corruption and how do you keep it and do you want to keep it like, oh, you know, I want to get a book published. I want to be not banned from the Internet. Like, how do you sort <laughs> of like, you know, like, how do you where do you deal with that? Well, you know, I think looking to what you're doing has helped me greatly because you've definitely given me courage to just step even further into the stuff that makes me feel good and excites me. But I think it goes back to the question that I didn't actually quite answer that you asked me a minute ago, which is. Yeah, get on and answer the question. (laughs) As soon as you start diving into this subject, you do realise that life is way, way more beautiful than you imagined. And it's way, way more painful than you imagined. And obviously that wakes you up to all of the pain and all of the beauty but that you can see that you have access to, whether it's via the internet or knowing other human beings going through things. It wakes you up to all of those situations. You can't just turn a page of a newspaper without empathy. You can't hear a friend telling you something that's deeply upsetting to them and not feel like you want to help because that that is spirituality. That is life, that you are awake and connected to it all. You don't always have to have obviously the solutions you don't have to always fix people or or help them on a level where they've changed their life but you have to be ready to feel all of those feelings I think that is inescapable you know and we we've talked before outside of work about the crossover with spirituality politics the media and it is it does all end up in one big melting pot and I am nervous about all of that because I see that they're linked and I see how they all sort of meld together and and I'm much more comfortable perhaps talking about I don't know whether it's the solutions or the beauty part I won't avoid the pain part because I'm happy to talk about my own life and the things that I found very challenging but when it moves into sort of politics and systemic structures that are clearly flawed and have been for years and years I do feel scared and that's because I am very aware that I am still a human being that finds uh, on mass criticism or or verbal abuse which I'm you know no stranger to very challenging like very very challenging I'm not thick-skinned I'm not someone that goes, oh, it's just someone else's projection. I know that this is all true, but I don't feel like that. I'm still finding my way in life, going back to talking about the Beatles. Um, I'm still trying to find my route to, to get to a place of true authenticity where I can talk about things that I feel passionate about. I can maybe help find solutions or at least talk to people that have them without feeling terrified of a huge backlash, you know, John and Yoko certainly didn't. They were doing all they could to talk about the things they were deeply passionate about with um, on mass criticism. Um, I'm not there yet. I'm quite open about that. I'm treading carefully because I don't want to damage my own mental health while I'm trying to help other people sort theirs out. So I've got to do it slowly. I've got to do it carefully. I know what my boundaries are. Um, I'll probably still get burned along the way and get hurt and end up self-loathing on a level. But... Um, hopefully I've got a few more tools now to help me then pick myself back up and at least sort of try again. You've changed. You can, you're different. You look different. You sound different. You're saying different stuff. That's changed, isn't it? You've become different. I can, 
see it in you. I like it when you said that thing about um, like life is sort of more beautiful, more painful than we can ordinarily imagine. And I like that thing that you say, that, that, that sort of oneness, because there's this, um, it's, uh, the book that I'm looking for, it's called um, The Death and Resurrection Show. And it's a, sort of like an old looking book and it's got a cover on it and there's a sort of a black shaman on it wearing sort of like witch doctory looking stuff. Um, and Annabelle probably knows what it is. And it was over there for a while. There's this book I wanted to show you. Um, I was just thinking these things like what come like people say the same thing about God as you were saying about spirituality that uh, like God is um, like Meister Eckhart from whom Eckhart Tolle took his name Meister Eckhart who's a, like a, I can't remember maybe he's a Dominican or Benedictine type monk man you read his stuff he's writing in medieval times and the stuff he's writing, even though it's li obviously literally under the auspices of Christianity, he's probably writing it in Greek or Latin or whatever it would have been back then. I think he's German or, you know, because there was no Germany then, he's whatever preceded Germany. And like he's, what he's writing is um, like it aligns with the principles of sort of Buddhism kind of perfectly. And this is what Meredith, who's a person that I like, take a lot of, uh, like it educates me a lot, she's sort of like, sort of pointed out that he's using christian language to describe like oneness and principles that aren't um overtly inherent in christianity even though someone like me and i think you uh, are interested in perennialism where all religions appear to align even though they say in the higher circles of academia that these kind of ideas are a little bit out of fashion but i i like that idea that you can see sort of consistent truths and ideas being instantiated variously through cultures and stories and myths I, it means that there's something in us that keeps telling that story keeps reaching for that meister eckhart says the eye with which i see god is the eye with which god sees me and like when you were saying about just like when you're listening to someone like every moment is like am i dealing with am i present now am i with god the limitless unity and oneness or have i moved back into sort of self where am i at right now you know and you know like me because you're a person with a family and four kids and a husband that that's you know that's where it's going to start giving you a kick in is when you're dealing with the people that love you most can you hold it together and not like think i'm going to say something to this person now that's going to really smash them up for, five, <laughs> for 10 minutes and get them right back <laughs> under my command and my control and then when you've got like little kids you're so aware of like like say when you have to do something where you have to physically restrain a child for example for some sort of <laughs> test you think oh my god like that's in there forever like <laughs> parenting fucks me up every day uh, and, and and this is the <sighs> This is the thing, like sometimes when I've read books on spirituality or life, whatever you want to call it, you can walk away feeling like, oh my God, this is this is impossible. How am I meant to live my life like this? And the person who's written the book or the person who's presenting the talk, who you know, whatever it is, who's just given a lecture, who's given a beautiful speech is so perfect because they've stuck to everything that they're committed to and they're doing it beautifully every day. And for me, that isn't spirituality. That that for me is totally unrealistic. I cannot, I know that I cannot live my life like that. Hopefully I'll make better decisions the older I get, the more I learn, the more I listen, the more I read. But I'm still gonna make stupid cock-ups and do idiotic things. And parenting is a prime example. Every day, as you well know, you are faced with the most sort of stubborn, 
wonderful, beautiful creatures that know their own mind, do not listen to a word you say, have their own ideas about life. And I'm, you know, I'm dealing with an age range of uh, six to 20 because I've got a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 16-year-old stepdaughter, 20-year-old stepson. So I've got, you know, like Arthur came in, my stepson came back from uni the other day. And I remember being 20. I remember this feeling. Um, and he was being a bit grumpy with me and he was sort of saying, oh, I'm so tired. I wrote 2,000 words today. And I was like, oh, I, I was being a bit of an arsehole, uh, admittedly. I said, oh, I did 8,000. And he went, oh, it was just a waffle. Because he's he's doing schoolwork, which is much harder than me writing an actual book. And he wants to let me know about it. So I've got a sort of a moodiness going on. And then I've got, you know, a nine-year-old who just wants to play the Nintendo the whole time. And you're trying to root back to these sort of, you know, commitments that you've made to yourself and you've read thousands of books on this stuff. You know what the right decision is and you end up losing your shit or saying something that you fear is going to affect them for the rest of their lives. It's the ultimate test every day in spirituality and in a spiritual life because you're given tiny road bumps or sometimes they can be quite big ones when you're dealing with teenagers and, you know, issues that that are life-changing to them. It's really hard to know... To, whether to follow your head, your heart, common sense, wisdom. You, you're, it's all in just such a massive muddle that it's really hard to, to make decisions clearly from a place rooted in all this stuff that you love and believe in. So I think that's what I'm committed to now. You know, getting back on my feet after challenging moments, not beating myself up too much, not going too down that rabbit hole of, oh my God, I've fucked up my kid's head forever. They're going to be in therapy about this time I, you know, told them they couldn't play the Nintendo, whatever it is. Um, And to, to try again, to get up and try again every day. Yeah, because like Meister Eckhart, though he may have achieved phenomenal things in the realm of the spirit, and conveying it through literature, through his theological writing, what he never had to do was deal with four kids because he lived in a monastery. And if there were any kids yeah. in there, we know why they were there and if they shouldn't have been. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Come on, I'm allowed to do God. jokes like that from time to time still. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about just then, um, you know, like I went to Legoland once. I'm not proud of it, but it was pretty good actually. And like, uh, but you <laughs> I've can been. do, yes, yeah, right. You can do like passes, like where you pay a disgusting sum of money to get to get access that you will feel ashamed of while using it in Legoland, <laughs> right? Like sort of like an. And I was thinking, like, that being a famous person... It's Q-jumping. Yeah, I, I, that is not a good feeling. It's wrong, isn't it? Like, you know, sort of if you get ushered for an airport, this has got... I, don't, I can't do these things anymore. You know, this is the thing about the spiritual path. You won't get away with, you know, you can't shout at people no more, or if you do, you will feel guilt and shame. You can't, you know what I mean? Like, it's like no wonder, you know, the family get it, because that's the only place where the pressure's off for a few seconds where you can say, I'm right, <laughs> this is who I am, actually. I've noticed so many of my resentments in life are because I've pretended to be nicer than I actually actually am and then like, <laughs> other people aren't doing it right listen i'm pretending to be nicer than i actually am why don't you start pretending to be a bit nicer than you actually are you bastards but like um like when you get that kind of privilege and access ultimately you will realize that lego land is not the solution and no construction no cultural artifact will provide the solution and when something like the beatles about around and we spent so much time at the beginning of our chat pr- create uh, an organic and powerful connection it's because i in my opinion they were sort of 
functioning as a portal for something extremely deep, deeper and bigger than any of them. And I think like the challenge probably for any of them is like, how do you be like a normal person in the world and also a channel for, you know, in their case, these great melodies and incredible ideas and a cultural movement and things that, you know, they couldn't anticipate. I realized too, as well, like, you know, and I, you know, your melancholy at the loss of a time that you were never alive at, you know, like, um, is because they are, you can't do that now. You cannot have that now. The culture's bleached and saturated and like, you know, that they've realized how you stitch up every single component of that, how you own every aspect of that. You know, new, like ultimately, it becomes a commodity. The system will turn like even something that's like, you know, the genuine curiosity in a counterculture, mysticism and spirituality, them lot, hanging with a Maharishi, learning transcendental meditation, popularizing those ideas, conveying it through music, John Lennon's alliances with like the Black Panthers and all sorts of pretty edgy shit. You know, like now, my God, try getting away with that in this homogenizing, backbiting, bring you down culture. It's like, that's all stitched up that, that you know, now what you've got is a set of products that's you know to try to mm. you've got to step out of that in order to to get into the ter those territories you you cannot use as um, our man malcolm x would say the uh, master's tools to dismantle the master's house you have to start living in adjacent systems whether that's the you know sort of technologies and online stuff and taking responsibility for your own work of, of finding access to older ideologies that precede these sort of modernizing forces that ultimately lead us into being passive little bloody units you know it seems like that is what you are looking yeah. to do eh? well i think we've at times we sort of confuse community with just being around lots of people or watching what lots of people are doing on the internet and thinking we know about them and you know how we use technology has obviously changed how our brains work and i don't know how irreversible that is, that's the bit that sort of scares me. And I was watching an interview the other day with uh, uh, an old interview with David Bowie. And he was, this is more specifically about art, but I think you can apply it to any part of life due to the ubiquitousness of feedback from other people, whether you're in the public eye or not. Everyone's got constant projected feedback. And, and he was talking about... Um, he, this was before social media. This was, I think, early days of the internet. And he had a prediction and a worry about the future with how art was created and what, um, what art was. Because it, he, he was predicting that art would only be seen as art if someone else had commented on it. Whereas his experience had always been, art is what I create. Yeah. And it could be something that no one ever hears or sees or whatever. Yeah. So if you're writing a poem and it ends up in your in your bag or you do a little doodle and it ends up in your drawer, that is still art. But we have completely annihilated that concept. We think that art is only art once it's out. Well, usually really today, if it's popular, then it's seen as art. And, and we can apply that to literally anything in our lives. Has it got meaning unless someone else has commented on it, debated it, seen it with their own eyes? And that's probably more due to social media. And I don't want to just sort of bash social media because at times I think it can be wonderfully informative and connective. Your channels are a, a superb example of that. Um, 
but I think we have to step back and and look at the systems we're in and work out where our meaning lies. Is it only in the times when someone else has commentary on our lives or our decisions or whatever it might be? That's when things become a product because someone else is aware of them, might you know, they might want to buy it or buy into it or see it, be part of it. I think we have to find meaning in, in our own realities that we might have just created in our own minds or that we're just sort of living in our own lives without having to keep showing what we're doing to other people or expressing what we think to other people. There has to be meaning and worth in just the stuff that we believe in quietly or our inner voice that doesn't get heard by other people. Um, I, I think that that's where we've got to sort of look for it rather than I need to buy into this thing, I want to be part of that, you know, community or wh- whatever it might be. It's like we, we have to also take note of the stuff that is sort of private, small, quiet and on our inner world, because I think we put so much focus on the exterior world. Uh, and I guess part of the book is turning our focus to, to the interior. That's a brilliant uh, way of putting that, because I spent most of my life around artists and entertainers. I almost fetishize people that are like, you know, I'm a nurse and actually all I care about is doing that. Like I don't have the, these whole set of criteria where if people don't start clapping and give me money, I can't cope with reality. I'm like, oh God, it's such a relief. <laughs> it's such a relief to talk to people like that. So really, you know, so like, what do people mean really? Like sometimes I want to be a musician or whatever. Well, what is your, like ultimately really when you investigate, people are saying, unless I get like money and celebrity and power I don't want to do this. They're like really, see, like uh, underwriting a lot of our expressed intention are pretty simple things like that are like we that have probably been with us since we were single cellular entities things like i want to feel good like even when people are talking about in like and i'm talking when i say people i mean me when i talk about enlightenment really am i saying i want to feel good i want to not suffer i want to not feel those things yeah and like there are some ways that we could like there are like esoteric or arcane techniques such as you look at for in your book various in meditation yoga uh, in in, in, uh, other modalities and there are other things like things that we can abstain from we can say like i'm starting to notice that overall my relationship with media or social media or a particular person is there's not a good return on that i don't think this is awakening me i don't think this is returning me to who i let you know even to have an idea of there's a person i'm supposed to be like some people would say what do you mean supposed to be what do you like what's what like the aren't you constructing meaning most materialist rationalists that and that's the dominant uh ideological milieu of our time we don't live in a time where people are consciously dominated by um, a spiritual value system by which I mean the idea that there is something timeless and whole unique yet connected in all like most people like if you can't measure it and you can't uh, sort of understand it or at least you know sort of define it then it isn't there and it ain't worth talking about that's like I've encountered that Mm. again and again through like the conversations that I've had and what that leaves us is bereft and unable to get beyond things like individualism materialism self-centeredness and the the sort of the kind of um, fluctuations of mood and emotion yeah because how can 
feeling good be prescribed? It's such a different experience for everybody. And if I isolate it to an example that that is that does sit within my working life, <clears throat> if I do a podcast and it's with a guest that's known by a lot of people and loads of people listening to it and then it ends up in the top 10 of the chart and people are liking the picture I post on Instagram, I might get a flicker and it's probably a hangover from my old life when I did stuff on TV. I get a flicker of, ooh, look at me, that's that's a bit exciting and the ego sort of having a chat about it. But it feels... Um, as nice as that is, and as much as I massively appreciate my audience's reaction to what they're listening to, there is uh, a deep sense of, oh, I need, I need something else. That wasn't quite it. But then, um, more recently, say, I did an episode with this incredible Swedish ex-forest monk. He is the most incredible person I've had the honour to talk to in years. And I cried with him and I sat and I listened to his life story and his decision making and the, the, the meaning and purpose that he had found through sort of 17 years as a, as a, you know, with a monastic life. And I closed my laptop at the end of that hour and I just sat and I and I wept with real tears of joy. It was I felt so amazing and I can't quantify that. You know, how many units of joy was I feeling? You know, I can't I can't quantify or put a label on what that was, but it made me feel all the things we've discussed connected, aligned. I found meaning in it. I understood my sort of purpose in the dynamic, but it's not, you know, it's not what we're told is going to make us feel good. Being popular, having loads of friends, having loads of stuff, being known, whatever it might be. It's not that. It's something that's almost indescribable. It was a inexplicable moment of connection with a stranger. And I got so much from it personally. And it boosted me for weeks thinking about his words and the conversation with, that we'd shared. We met at a real raw and authentic place at times and we were really interested in each other that felt beautiful that you know I've got like you loads of Instagram followers it's nice to be able to communicate with people I enjoy that but it's not that feeling it's not that rich beautiful feeling of that moment has somehow changed a bit of me and it felt amazing I think we're just told constantly by you know, whether it's the media, whatever exterior sources that we've got to look for the other stuff. And it's all really far reaching and it's really exterior, whereas it's usually the sort of quiet inner stuff, the smaller, the quieter moments that are amazing and really undervalued. It's really hard to head in that direction. What is he called? I'm going to get his book because I can't remember his surname. <laughs> so... <clears throat> It's it's an unbelievable story. The book's called I May Be Wrong. He's called Bjorn Nathiko, which is his uh, forest monk name, Lindeblad, however you say that in a Scandi accent. And um, really sadly, he, he turned 60 recently. He was, um, many years ago now, diagnosed with ALS. And his, his life is coming to an end. What is that, ALS? ALS is where your um, your muscles basically deteriorate at quite a fast pace, and you're at the end of towards the end of your life, you, you have so little mobility, um, and and it and it's um, you know it's a very life limiting illness, and 
we he talked so beautifully about death and obviously with mm. his buddhist knowledge and and the thinking there it was so beautiful and you know weirdly i'm not this is not comparative to his life in any sense but my cat had died the day before so this subject was fresh it was raw i, I was uh, curious and wanted to to learn more about his thoughts around it and the interview and just conversation on a personal level once we'd sort of stopped recording was so I just never experienced anything like it. I didn't know how to end the conversation because I didn't want to say goodbye. It was making me just feel really upset and um, and very reflective because I knew I wouldn't get a chance to talk to him again. Um, I found it really difficult. And I just sort of kept thanking him, really. But it was it was one of the most beautiful conversations I, I've ever had. And, you know, I'm not a big social person. I don't like going to parties. I, I like being at home. I like keeping my life small. So when I have a conversation like that, and it's not surface chat, we, we, you know, we've, we've really met a, a sort of, we've met heart to heart. I feel so privileged to have that sort of experience. That to me is, I guess, what I'm seeking and what I deem success now having a moment where I've truly connected with someone. It might be someone I know, but in this instance, it was someone I'd never met and I will never meet. But it was life-changing on a level. And, um, and you know, as we talked about before, you can't quantify that. It's it's sort of inexplicable and it's, and it's a full-bodied, it's on a cellular level, that sort of feeling. It's really beautiful. And I, I just feel very lucky that I get to do that quite often in my job I feel very very lucky not because I've got Instagram followers not because people say oh I like your podcast because I get to have these chats that are I'm not saying how was your holiday what was your Christmas like we we can dive in the deep end straight away and that feels that feels like a real privilege when you have those that um connection I feel like what is potent about it partly is the idea or more accurately feeling that there is something real that there is something truthful that can be accessed you feel that something maybe is emanating from an individual like oh it's real you know it as well these kind of encounters you know the truth is you can't sort of sustain it forever can you like sort of me this is why I became a drug addict is because I have some feeling of bliss you know of like oh my god there is another reality I'm not just an individual person trying to like survive or stimulate myself through pleasure in some way I, there's actually something else I remember having these sort of like moments like through creativity through comedy through performance like through the heroin like the, the feeling of like oh Yes, the release, the sort of the uh, melting of the boundaries of myself as an individual. The reason I maintain a kind of fascination with psychedelics, even though I can't get anyone to co-sign my right to take them, like, <laughs> is like um, I feel like you know, man, that's gonna that will smash me, 
and I'll yeah. see it. I will see God. I will see God in a way that's like, no, I fucking told you. I fucking told you. It's not just, you know, that we have the five sensory avenues and that's the only reality we get. Well, that, of course, that's the most obvious and measurable reality because those are the five instruments. But is it not possible there are another five, another million, because we're in limitless space and that we prioritise the reality we can... And then when something makes you feel like... You know, if you think about it, our culture directs us to feel it like maybe erotically or even through falling in love or even like you know things that are like through your kids or your but like when you have it in a moment like with someone that you've got there no legitimate reason to feel it towards like your man um god rest his soul and praise him while he's here like like um like that you feel like oh wow it's not actually contingent on someone being physically attractive or being a relative or being in some way that is um, anointed, uh, a a sanctioned um, conduit for me to feel those things. It's just like it's there all the time. It's just there. Them saints, all them saints we keep, you know, like sort of alluding to, the shamans, the rishis, the sages, they're like, that's what that's what Christ is saying. He said, the kingdom of heaven is within. You are here already. This is it. That you're all the same as me. Like that Jesus Christ, with all of that, I am the son of God stuff, you know, which I think he was quite famous for, was like, uh, he was also saying, you can do it. We're all the same. We're all the same. We're all part of it. We're all part of it. And in the end, all of this messaging gets sort of refined into something that will make you sit in your chair and pay your money you know in the end anything that's sort of a bit too glorious gets eliminate that that's going to rile them up that's going to have people answer it because you know like a thing that i return to is that you know the world doesn't require more people to believe in god it just requires the people that do to start acting like it uh, and I feel like, wow, it's like I don't need to be evangelizing and getting out on the street going, listen, hear the word. I need to start living like, None of this is real. I don't care. I'm going to be in the service of God now. But, like, you know, I get like the, the magnetism on either side. You know, like when the thing for me, Fernando, and I bet it's true for you too, is that I have to keep doing the stuff that makes me feel this. So I have to have keep having the conversations with Bjorn or with you or being live on stage where then people expect me to be like you better make us laugh and make us feel love and explain to us that this reality is a construction but there is something deeper and we can feel hope because if i when i stop doing that i just shrink down to like a little normal geezer and like I, that's not enough you know what i mean i can't <laughs> cope i can't I think, cope with um, it it's reminding me of a conversation i had with tara brack who i'm a huge fan of who she puts this into the context of kindness that every day, and I don't think it's her direct quote, I think she had heard it from somebody, that you have to consciously swerve off your path every day to be kind. And you do because it's certainly obviously in a modern day cultural structure, we're almost encouraged to be selfish. We're encouraged to think individually. We're encouraged to get what we can to maximise life. There's this kind of weird term that gets sort of touted about in well-being something like self-optimization which I'm really uncomfortable with because for me it's not that it's not about optimizing your one life because you're only here once and you get one chance it's not about that it's about you know if you have a conversation with someone like that or you connect on any level it could be staring at a flower in springtime that makes you just feel completely in awe of nature or sitting with your pet you know we've got pets and we're completely in love with them and just sitting and feeling that love emanating from them it's not 
self-optimization. It's feeling that connection with everything and everyone and knowing that we are all the same. And as soon as spirituality or any other concept becomes exclusive to one group of people or you know you're not smart enough to know you don't you don't haven't read enough or you know you don't live in the right area whatever the hell it is that's where we have problems this should be stuff that we're all able to access that we're all able to implement into our everyday lives and that it is actually all really simple but we have to remember that we've got to swerve off our you know, everyday path, because we do sleepwalk for a lot of the day, all of us do that, we have to swerve off our path to help other people to, you know, like when you're on stage, you're not just making people laugh, you're, you're giving them endorphins, making them feel better about themselves, giving them information. When you're doing a podcast, when you're doing your YouTube channel, these are all ways that you're trying to help other people but you have to put effort and work in and commitment and you have to swerve off your own path and it will be different for everyone some people you know that might be part of their job or it might just be something that makes them feel good but we all have to sort of remember that you do have to swerve off your own path to try and go to this level to experience conversational connection that isn't surface and isn't just about individual needs yeah i like it firm thank you so much Listen, this is the book like I was wanted to show you. It's called The Death and Resurrection Show. This bloke came on the podcast called John Higgs and he talked a lot about William Blake and he talked about like uh, the KLF, right, who like were sort of like, you know, madly experimental and had weird, weird ideas behind their pop music. He said, you've got to get this book called The Death and Resurrection Show. It's hard to get, he said. And like, I got this one. It's expensive, right? And like, um, but it's about how like um, shamanism is the fu- the underlying archetype behind show business and how he argues that show business comes from shamanism like Whoa. like almost in a literal way like in put in put short in like relatively truncated he says first of all everyone's nomadic and living in tribes hunter gathering then it becomes after agriculture settled societies but there still would have been nomads and then nomads would have traded and interacted with settled societies and we're all familiar with the idea of like traveling minstrels snake oil salesmen and like the idea of a troop that comes in and like that he says that the, the, the tropes that these troops would use are all left over from shamanic ritual and he even says things like he goes have you ever thought what is that when a magician soars like a volunteer or assistant in furs he goes or like what the rope trick is the indian so-called indian rope trick where like you know and all these sort of and he says like that in shamanism like you said earlier yourself in fact that you were broken in two by despair or something right and like um he says like that that the shaman like the and i'm sure you know this from your own research and perhaps it's in your book like that the shaman at some point will have suffered great illness and at some point will have fallen apart will have been destroyed and annihilated and because of this the shaman can become a healer because the shaman knows how to heal because the shaman has been pulled apart so when you encounter the shaman encounters illness shaman can heal the shaman is also necessarily a communicator an orator that's part of their function in the tribe so they're part healer part witch doctor like you know he's talking about the various roles that there are but show business is a kind of sanitized version like you know like he talks about people like chaplin houdini and then he goes on to sort of like people like bowie and like sort of you know the androgyny of bowie shamans are often not male not female he talks about like how houdini did all these death defiance things you 
and ultimately sort of dying actually uh, which seems to be a trend i've noticed over time for for most people and like um you know it's sort of a really cool book I, i'll get oh, you a copy. I'm, oh, i'll buy one i'll get one that sounds i love a, a good book tip i'm definitely up for reading that that's awesome yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing because what it's essentially telling you is that you cannot submerge religious ideas that like and as even jp jordan peterson says is you have got something that's your god your high he goes you will have a hierarchy of values and whatever is your utmost value that is p- p- as in terms of function your god anyway yeah you know, whatever it is it doesn't matter whether you define it as like some all knowing omniscient or any that's not relevant in terms of how it makes you behave or how it acts on your psyche this is obviously a Jungian idea anyway I suppose um I, we'd better go because it's this is the amount of time that we talk for Fern it's amazing yeah to hear from I've you. got to do kids dinner and all that that, that jazz now do? and try and remain spiritual whilst cooking fish fingers I challenge. don't want fish fingers I ain't having them I'll be after I've cooked it the complaints will come in but I'm, that, I'm you know after I'm ready you've for cooked it. it I didn't want this can I have something else oh every day every day but this yeah. is this is it this is um where presence and awareness really come into play. Hopefully someone will not being a full arsehole. drink over. Like a full drink just oh, goes yeah. over really early in the process of that dinner. I love all of it. It's, it's a joy. Oh, um, glory. But yeah, so that's what I'm doing. So thank you so much. I really appreciate um, you having me on the podcast because I know I'm not like a lot of your super intelligent, uh, amazingly sort of, you know, studious guests that you have on. And um, I hope that the last hour wasn't just sort of waffle. Um, you're doing good. I really don't want to hear you saying that word or saying that about yourself. I think you're becoming an incredibly refined communicator, that you're authentic and you're growing. You're evidently growing. Your success is not an accident or a mistake. You're doing what you're supposed to do and you're doing it brilliantly. I've looked into your new book. It's excellent. I listened to your podcast and I'm going to listen to that one with that Bjorn. Yeah, you're, you're great. It's, they, uh, it's normal to doubt yourself. And why wouldn't we doubt ourselves? We're not really here. We're a construct. But uh, know that you're doing the right <laughs> Thing and you're fantastic and you've every right to be see you have to take it to the bigger level this is this is why i wrote a book called bigger than us because if i don't look at the big stuff i concentrate on all the small shit that doesn't matter so it's bigger all the way it's yeah, not well a good done. line to finish on That's, um, so we're going to cut out <laughs> hard on that <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you so much russell well done fern Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Fern Cotton. Well, you've not changed this bit, though, have you? If this is standard, you've not gone once again on <laughs> this bit, have you? <laughs> Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Russell Brand with hashtag Under the Skin. I'm going, oh, bloody hell, come and see me on tour in 2022. Go to RussellBrand.com for the dates and get tickets, particularly places like Scanny, 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 Scanforp, Scarborough, Nottingham, Glasgow. Anyway, go to RussellBrand.com for your tickets. And if you don't meditate on Above the Noise, you can be. You've got Luminary now. <laughs> Meditate. Why are you coughing? I feel like I've had two years of not coughing in there. My body's coughing it out. Yeah. At the end of my what I call COVID, yeah. I coughed out something. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, it's another thing. It was. I felt cleansed. No, Jen. you didn't. You felt. It was the else. color of Kiora. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah, but I've never felt better. Do you remember <laughs> to Kiora? See it. You know, it was out. The seeing it that was enjoyable it was all done now above the noise learn to meditate and be guided in the meantime if you enjoyed this conversation why not check out some other episodes fern's previous episode exclamation mark what's the thinking there jen 
Or they go, oh, this was really nice. A bit sad it's over. Oh, no, there's another error. Michael Mead. Why Michael Mead, Jen? Myth. Hmm? And archetypes. Myth. An archetype. <laughs> Myth. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. And keep checking out my YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.